And now, the Rathband Tapes, episode 10. Two trips, one story. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever time it is. Welcome to the Rathband Tapes. I'm Tony Horn in Lancashire, England, in South Australia. The late PC David Rathband's twin, Darren Rathband. On our last episode, we explored 15 minutes of fame. The praise and the highs that come with it, and then the downside as people who, in one breath, took you by the hand and held you as a hero, in another, abandoned you. In this episode, we are in the summer of 2011, one year on from David's shooting. We're about to address an article, several articles, and the moment the press turned. Before we do that, Darren, it does occur to me that in the 12 months since David was shot, he has been busy. He hasn't really stopped the trial day after day, the narrating to me of the book night after night, obviously the preceding autumn, a period of recovery, a period of celebration, Pride of Britain Awards, getting the charity going. We can look back at that now and say that that intense period was obviously exhausting, but was also a cushion because he needed to be busy. But I was very clear in my mind, the level of concern when that book came out, what happens next? And nobody has got a plan. The rhetoric about going back to work is pie in the sky stuff but we can trace the beginning of the end as i stated in the previous episode back to that summer i think yeah i, I spoke to david about going back to work he, he did tell me that they arranged a meeting for him to go into i think i'm not sure it was headquarters or somewhere in pontyland or i'm not sure the area or location we went but they basically said it was too dangerous for him to go so he was never going to go back to work i think that was the hope that david would would eventually have a, a fulfilling role and I don't think they worked out that quick enough we can be critical I suppose but before we even get there Tony we've got to look at the things that they didn't put in place like counselling or somebody who, who could mentor him and, and a welfare officer that actually understood welfare and maybe built a, a relationship up with David not some uneducated unskilled inspector that didn't know his arse from his elbow I think that would have been beneficial and I think in one of our first discussions I mentioned a bit of regret uh, and that would be the regret that I had that it was full on for David and he didn't have a chance to sort of heal but you know what I don't his eyesight was gonna, wasn't going to come back so that regret is somewhat levelled out a bit I think in, in time my time I think and let's remember here that there are two things that happened to David in the first part of 2011 that are incredible moments of stress that most people listening to this will never experience either of the two the first is the trial and the second is the intensity of reliving everything for a different purpose and the purpose being the book and i have an editor uh, a proofreader called matt rance an excellent guy who always says to me that when i've finished a book i go into a sort of dark place i always say steam is coming off me but when you finally put a book to bed and it's out there you're exhausted like a london marathon like a trial and 
it does take you a bit of time to come out of that place and also to reflect on what you've you've written and david and i did have a conversation about the effect of the book you know when i read the bit where you said uh, i was so glad that they knew it was me tango 190 you have i mean it's like now i feel up thinking about it but um because you're just you that you're just forgotten and that was his fear And when that period ends, the energy of the post-book exhaustion, and a book that took more out of me than anything else I've ever written since, we are in August, and we'll come now to an article on the 26th of August, 2011, so presumably 24, 48 hours after what happened happened. I'm looking at the Newcastle Evening Chronicle, a paper I once worked for. There are other articles out there. Raoul Moat Victim, the story begins, depressing in itself. David Rathman has been arrested on suspicion of assault, police have confirmed. Inquiries are ongoing into the incident which saw the blinded PC detained at his home in Cramlington, Northumberland, late on Tuesday night. I remember this and I don't really remember it the line of inquiry Darren is essentially that he attacked Ash my understanding was that wasn't even portrayed in any of the stories I, I believe it was a, an assault well a, an alleged assault on Kath so neither of us are clear I, I know what the story is but I know the press didn't allude to what the actual alleged assault was because they, they would have got it wrong the story from David and this is also been confirmed by other people was there was an argument at the home address one of the hanger-ons Steve Bridge had heard David talking to Lisa on the phone the Lisa Lisa French David was talking about going back to his home they brought the the big house and had that up done all modified for David which included a telly in the shower which David would have really benefited from not he had the house at Blythe that was virtually empty and unable to be rented. So David was discussing going back to the house because he felt he was a burden on Alcaf. And that was overheard by this Steve Bridge. Steve Bridge then went and told Kath that David was having an affair with somebody and he was due to leave and was going to leave Kath. Obviously, he got that story wrong. An argument ensued with David and Kath Ash became vocal and got involved and Ashley assaulted David by punching him in the face. So David never assaulted anybody. And what people got to remember is David's blind. So to assault somebody is quite difficult. Not impossible, but certainly highly implausible. Uh, Ashley punched his father in the face. David decided to walk out of the house, left the address in Cramlington, and started to walk towards Penny Dane's house. And if the listeners remember, that's the rehabilitation officer, uh, which is miles away. And he was doing a pretty good job when a police patrol who was looking for him because they had concerns for his welfare because he'd left the address, came across him and asked David to get in the car. David said no, and he was threatened with arrest to fit 
uh, or certainly to get David off the street. They arrested him and de-arrested him as soon as he was at the station. However, in the meantime, the press had got hold of the story that he was arrested. I think the one thing to take from that is that that's a version of events that you won't read, hear or see anywhere. Sorry, Tony, can I just add as well? I've tried to get this out into the press, and you, as we were saying before, they only print what they want to. I've had numerous conversations with reporters and expressed the same story, and none of them were interested. Even to this day, when Mia, his daughter, writes a story about the newborn child that her dad would have loved so much, the end of that story relates to her father being a death domestic violence perpetrator and somebody who's had more affairs than somebody in Parliament. Well, that is well observed because you can write a gushing piece about somebody, but such is the nature of clickbait and such is the nastiness of journalism that you'll always find a section in there that refers to the person and then there'll be a who dot 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 which refers to something unsavory in the past as though people are unable to write a story without dragging something up they're unable to just see the story for where it is today and also and i don't mean this disrespectfully we're in a cut and paste era of journalism now and some people who write the stories may not be aware that the cut and paste that they're linking to, they're clickbaiting to, was not accurate in the first place. In your analysis of what happened that night, you do say something which, in this woke society, I've been musing over for some time as to how to address it, and you've done it. And that is, again, without any disrespect to anybody who is blind I've scratched my head many times at the likelihood of a lightweight average height blind person being able to lash out particularly in the direction of David's son Ashley who was bulkier than him now if there's any offence there doubting the physical capabilities of blind people we apologise but when you try to picture it in your head, and as brilliant as David was with his spatial awareness, it is hard to get your head around, isn't it? Yeah. Like I said, Tony, it's it's not implausible, but it's highly unlikely. Uh, and the circumstances were portrayed by David to me. And that wasn't the first occasion either. There was an occasion where David was laughed at by all of them in the garage because uh, he nearly fell over, over a piece of glass. I'm not sure if it was near his treadmill. And they all stood there laughing at him. That was his family. Another occasion, David said he was in the garden, it had gone dark, obviously everybody else knew it was dark, and that he could hear them laughing, and they'd left him in the garden for hours after, after sunset. So people need to understand as well, these, this whole incident, or what's happened, hasn't just affected David, the whole life, the whole family unit that David's part of is damaged and it's having an, it's had an effect on everybody. I've listened back to the previous episodes of the podcast and I've found myself saying on many times, self-critiquing here, this is an important moment, which tells you two things. That one, I need to raise my game in terms of the language that I'm using, but also that there are many, many important moments. And what do important moments give you? They give you 
failed opportunity. I'll say that rather than missed opportunity. Failed is much more clear cut than missed. This is such an important moment, Darren, and you are bang on to talk about you trying to correct the narrative with the press. And I will explain why. This is the point in which the press turn and however good a journalist you are when you start writing a story you often have a predetermined viewpoint in your head but this moment this incident and imagine that a lonely broken blind man leaves his home which is his only comfort and begins walking to his other house they are the steps of a broken man now the press I'm coming to it to my knowledge this is the point when the media began raiding David's social media and when we come towards the end well look the clues were all there and it was distressing to watch in this article from the evening chronicle you can google it lazy journalism the cut and paste era ahead of the incident which led to rathban's arrest we're now distancing ourselves. you know we called him a hero a month ago but he's now rathban he retweeted a message from his twin brother darren which said some people just make it even harder fools come in all shapes Ah yes, the terrible twins were definitely the king of the mysterious tweet. Tweets from earlier in the week suggested the dad of two had been struggling to sleep. On Monday night he wrote, alcohol next, sleeping pills not working. On Saturday the officer tweeted, lots on my mind. PC Rathban also used his Twitter profile to reveal he had attended hospital on Tuesday morning to have metal pellets removed from his face. Now, people that are becoming the journalists of tomorrow today may say well you're a bit old school there Tony criticising a journalist and remember this is 10 years ago for lifting somebody's tweets everything is out there it's all fair game hmm. as we discussed in the episode 15 minutes of fame but the truth of the matter is that every journalist that runs a story should be making a phone call to the person that they are writing the story about and if you read this article it simply says arrested and then quotes a load of tweets i believe darren has told what actually happened accurately to the best of our knowledge and fairly i recall this period and not a hell of a lot after i was that concerned about david i was back in Cheshire at that time so for those of you who don't know when I worked for the radio station in Newcastle between 2004 and 2011 I commuted so I would drive up um, once a week and, and drive home because my young family were growing up in in Cheshire so I'm not in the northeast but I drove to see David because I was concerned and I sat with him on the floor in the house in Blythe and we just sat on the floor our backs against the wall metaphorically and physically 
as I said in a previous episode, my life had tumbled almost at the same pace as David's. I've been one of the voices of radio in the Northeast, and suddenly I'm not on anymore. My family had chosen not to be that anymore. We sat there in one of the grimmest afternoons. It was a Friday. I don't know what we talked about, what we talked about, everything and nothing. And it was... It was a very, very dark moment, very sad moment. And, you know, I think that actually was the last time I saw David would have been late August 2011. You know what, Tony? Angie was in England for that Great North run. She actually came back to do that with David and she noticed the press walk past and ignore him. And David actually said to her, they're not even interested anymore. So I know that that is a significant status of where my David where David was and I know it progressively got worse on the back of that there's all the family issues and also how ironic that David goes back to a house where he thought his family were at risk he's now a blind man in a house with no furniture uh, and I believe Kerry has to buy him a washing machine which will be mentioned a bit later on near nearer the end he, she buys him a washing machine because he can't wash any of his clothes and a mattress and lives in that house on his own with no visitors or limited visitors from the police, no support network. That's how much David was uh, looked after. You are correct. I had forgotten about the Great North Run. That would be the last time I saw him. And you talk about people walking past him. I can remember having a conversation with him on the morning. He came out of the metro in Newcastle, somewhere perhaps around Monument Station. And somebody with a high-vis vest on, I don't know for whom they were working, deliberately made David walk the long way round. Obviously, on Great North Run Day, there's lots of places that are cordoned off. Sometimes there's work being done on the metro. But David told me that and we're at the beginning of the shaking your head period where people who were kind to you are no longer and I know David around this time so soon after that absolute high of the book I know he felt that he was being forgotten because he told me they, they, they need to realise how lucky they all were because I took it I took what I took for all of them and they forget I'll be, I'll be forgotten. You know what I mean? I'll just be, oh, oh yeah, Rathbandy was a cop that got shot. And how degrading is that for me? In the police, I will, Tony, and that means more to me than outside in the public domain. They see the public have a lot... I know the public are fickle in, in some ways, but the police, police officers are the ficklest people I've ever met in my life. You can leave the police on a Friday after 30 years of service and be forgotten by the following... I think it's safe to say that by September 2011, he felt forgotten. Now, how, how true are words spoken? And to put that into context, I left in August. I've had one visitor since I left from my police service here in 14 years. He is so right. And you know what? David was probably not the easiest person to go and visit. But you would think that there would be some loyalty and need to make sure that one of your colleagues who, who got shot was doing okay. Like David did with that officer that ran over that poor girl on her way to, uh, I think she was 16. Tony, I think you mentioned her earlier. Hayley Adamson. Yeah, Hayley. David became friends with 
her father, I think, because of being an FLO, and David even went to visit the policeman. Do you know what? Nobody else did. There go I, but for the grace of God. And as soon as you do leave the police force, you are forgotten. And just to dispel this narrative of, well, divide and conquer, you know, that the press are already at this point trying to portray a broken home. Let's just remember what David said about, firstly, Mia, his daughter, around the period that he was in hospital. Those three weeks I was in hospital, or whatever it was, I seem to have missed three years of Mia's life, because she aged so quickly in a month. You know, she went from being my... You know, my nickname for her, as, a, as you know, was Ferret, but she was my princess and all of the sweet things that, you know, fathers say about their daughters. When I came home, she was a, she was a woman. And Ash, when they address the media after the verdict? You know, he's never brought me a speck of bother. And it's like, like today, you know, he hasn't been, oh, let me get in front of you and let me be big and, you know, and he just walks around very, you know... Incon- uh, inconspicuous is it um, you know and like in the pub uh, obviously well, there's lots of police on it and he just sat down had a drink and I'd got my back to him because I didn't I didn't know where he was and somebody said oh you've got your back to your son and I heard him say oh it doesn't matter it doesn't matter I had not a lot to do with Mia she was a almost a teenager I think at the point that I was there quite a lot Ash a little more but not massively they struck me as being his world. Yeah, he doubted yeah. them. It takes you know, his toll, doesn't it? He loved it? his kids. He loved his wife, he loved his kids. And you know what? Dirty washing should have been left in the washing machine. There was no need for it. And unfortunately, that was the start of the, the end. Yeah, and the end takes us to Australia. My memory here is a little short. I don't recall David saying to me he was going to Australia... When did he arrive? I think it was probably around the late end of October of 2011, I think. And he came back just before Christmas and then came out again. Is that correct? Well, he came out, and by all accounts, that was a brief call. I'm coming out to Australia, and me and Kath are going to come out. And then we expected him and Kath. Obviously, Kath didn't come, and then... Obviously, David arrived with, I think, Lisa French and said, obviously, I'm here. He stopped here for about three weeks and then October, November, maybe a bit longer than that, Tony. And then he went back to England just before Christmas and then came back here just after Christmas. Many people don't go to Australia. (laughs) It is a trip of a lifetime. To go twice in quick succession tells me one thing, and that is that with you, it was the only place that he felt... I don't want to say safe, because that word has implications, because obviously his safety has been compromised on the streets, but I suppose safe within his own spirit. There was two two reasons, Tony, why he came to Australia. One, in hindsight... I know was to put things in place so he was comfortable in his decision making and the second or one of the other reasons was yes he wanted to I think he wanted to get away from the hamster wheel 
effect of what was going on in the UK. And do you see a significant difference, particularly in relation to putting things in place, between the two trips? Yeah, the, the first period, and I'm, I'm, I think that's probably about, probably maybe November a bit later, I'm not sure of the, the actual times, but that was more of a holiday. He came, I've got, we went away for a week and a half camping in our caravan, Tony, and I, there's pictures in the press with him lying on an Australian blanket with a blow-up sheep, and we've had, we had a really good time. We went crabbing. I've got pictures of him and Angie holding a crab net. We just just relaxed, and Angie tended his, his, sort of his shots coming out of his face, and we talked about just growing up. I've got a video of him where we're, we're teaching him how to throw a boomerang and he's laughing his head off because we're all going, Duck David, it's coming back and it's nowhere near him. And we, I've, I've, I've got that, it's just a special moment. That period was just really, really relaxed. Then he decides to go back to spend Christmas with his wife and the children. You might not appreciate the significance of the boomerang story there, but I think it underlines the value of the proximity of family and the whole issue of tone so on the latter david was always the first to say to make comments about sight you know how will i recognize you etc you look great darren can make that joke about a boomerang but other people can't because it would be tasteless but for his twin who knew him so well to make it it's fine you don't have to explain anything you don't have to be wary i think it underlines that sort of proximity i remember speaking to david on christmas day i called him i can see it now from my couch at 20 past two i did also speak to kath that day in the same conversation looking back on it now i think it was one of those conversations where he couldn't really talk but also didn't tell me what he was really thinking when he left the first trip did you know he was coming back the second triple no no uh, my understanding was Tony that he was going to go home I think Lisa was flying somewhere else or going somewhere else David was going to return home and, and the decision he, he made the decision to go home because he wanted to make sure that he tried everything to save his marriage he wanted to explain to Kath that him and Lisa weren't an item that she'd clearly become a friend due to her experiences with the 7-7 bombings that it was purely platonic and I can guarantee you when they stopped here they didn't sleep in the same bedroom and I said that to the press many many years ago and that wasn't even picked up on either he was having an affair with Lisa French so, and when he went back to England there was no intimation that he was going to come back to Australia On Good Morning Britain after David's death it may have been called Daybreak then I'm not sure I was interviewed for two and a half minutes about 25 past six in the morning the way I prepare for interviews like that is I imagine 20 questions that they could ask me and I've got three minutes and I try to be very clear about the messages that I'm sending. So when I was interviewed, I knew that I was going to get asked, well, the question was, but Tony, isn't this really a story about the other women in David's life? So I was ready for it. And I said on national telly, I'll have to look it up exactly, but that is just a smokescreen for the real issues in this story. But that's the first time from you there that I have ever heard anybody confirm the 
Lisa French um, dynamic and I've spoken to Lisa a little a long time ago I also said on that television interview it's not uncommon for a victim of crime to find comfort with another victim of crime and that seems to be in your words how it was Tony that's exactly how it was David was talking to Lisa French on Twitter and that was before he even left that house when Ashley assaulted him um, it was only after that did David ever meet Lisa French and the picture that was portrayed in the press with David and Lisa French was that's got nothing to do with an affair Lisa is taking him to the bank to actually withdraw some cash I think to pay for these flights to come to Australia so it's just that spin and spin and what you got to put into context as well Tony Kath went back to work three months after David went, went home he was left at home on his own with no support Kath decided to go back to work so you mentioned women in David's life the only woman that David could rely on had decided to go back to work and leave David at home Lisa French if you are still unsure in her own words to me walked up the stairs on the bus at Tavistock Square 7-7 either one step behind or one step in front of the bomber quite horrific absolutely horrific not quite horrific I correct myself and sometimes love comes in many complicated forms and you can still find love in flawed relationships the end is nigh for David and Kath but he always spoke of her as his rock to me 18 months ago I was living in a flat well a three up um, it was a two up uh, two down on my own for a few months so I moved out I mean it's like Kath said the other week what would you have done if you'd been on your own and she said to me she said I would have come back I'd have had you back well that was some time before this how how did he seem in that first visit can you say he was happy he seemed really, yeah he seemed really just relaxed not not preoccupied just wanted time to recharge we went out for like I think I've said to you before we went out for an Indian meal and somebody recognised him in Australia and I think that put him off a little bit but he also said see what I mean you know what I'm really grateful I spent valuable time with my brother above anybody else he chose me above anybody else and when he left for Christmas after that first trip we'll come to the second one at the end of that first trip what did you think as he left then oh, no, I, to be honest I thought he was going home to sort out to go back home to sit down with Kath and, and sort of work out where they were going and if they were going together forward or if they were going to save their marriage they were estranged at that point David was obviously living at the house at Blythe and I spoke to Kath I spoke to Kath on the phone here there was no discussion about getting splitting up or who's paying who and what am I getting out of it it was a matter of David needs some time to sort of rebuild his strength and at one stage Tony Kath even said she was going to come out here so it obviously all changed as soon as she found out that Lisa French had come over to chaperone it. Which you can understand. Well, you can, but if you understand that he's a blind man on a, pl- on a plane going to somewhere where he has got no idea and his wife has refused to come out or declined to come out and he wants to come out, then well, you, you can argue the point. You didn't fear for the ultimate inevitability at that point when you... No. Packed him off for Christmas. No, 
I didn't pack him off. He went as a, as an adult with his own decision making plans. He discussed it with Kath to go home and sort and spend Christmas with the family, and that didn't work out because, by all accounts, Christmas dinner he was ignored by all of them. Nobody ever spoke to him. Tony made him feel unwanted, unloved, and that's why he came back. And I think that's where he'd made his decision on what the final outcome would be. That's why he came back. And what you have to remember. That first month, there was never any discussion about things he wanted to put in place should something happen to him. That wasn't mentioned. Then mentioned on his second visit. Unless you are extremely lucky in life, the hand of fate will perhaps serve you up a couple of Christmases in your life where your life appears grim you can't see a future I've had a couple of those maybe every 10 years as it happened this Christmas I felt in a parallel world to David I I really didn't know where I was going it can be the loneliest place in the world to be snubbed or to be isolated on Christmas day it's an amazing trick and illusion of the calendar that you can wake up on Boxing Day, glad it's all over, and not feel quite so bad, but the reality is still staring you in the face. How soon after Christmas did he return to Australia? I think he must have been back here the 27th, 28th of December. Wow. It was a relatively quick turnaround. Now we look at it looking back, and that is very significant we talk about the difference between the two trips if the first trip is a holiday and whilst we might not have known it immediately late December 2011 the second trip resonates doesn't it for it's the end of the road yeah uh, I keep saying hindsight it's, it's brilliant isn't it um, but if you if we do look back David just he, I suppose resigned he looked resigned when he came back didn't want to do anything didn't want to go anywhere, just sat, picking his face, taking shots out of his face, and he was constantly on the phone, trying to speak to Kath, texting Kath, uh, having discussions on loudspeaker where she was asking for £120,000 that she wasn't having him back, and that went on for a considerable amount of time, to the extent that he was making call after call, Tony, to the stage where I said, look, David, you need to, you need to just stop, put your phone down, you're going to make yourself poorly or you're going to make it even worse and it just basically did get worse Can you remember dates around that time specifically when he came back the second time? I'm trying to remember exactly when I spoke to him but I know that I called him before he returned He killed himself didn't he on February the 29th he was only back three days I think if, if less than that so he was sort of 20th odd of February he would have been sort of here trying to make that last ditch attempt at trying to sort out his marriage and having discussions about finances and, and I think if we if you looked at his tweets and his messages on Facebook that would probably tie in with that period where it's sort of coming to a, a conclusion here and, and that's how significant it was it, it, it switched on from that's it I'm done to 
or sort it from, I'm going to try and do my utmost to save it too. I don't care, it's all done, I'm finished. Yeah, we'll deal with the, the social media next time around. I have it in my head. I don't know why. I might be making this up. That I spoke to him on the 5th of February. I don't know why. I know why I spoke to him. I don't know why. I think it was that day. It may be, it may not. I remember he picked up the phone and he knew it was me. And he said to me, I've only got five numbers left in my phone. I've deleted everybody. It might have been a bit dramatic with the five, but he had the self-awareness there to realise that he was forgotten. You have to also remember as well, Tony, he, he, his close family, his sister, me and his other two sisters, uh, weren't able to be anywhere near him due to the fact that his family dynamic when he was at home, certain, well, not certain, Kath wanted to keep him as, as a commodity to herself. We were ostracised from David for a long period of time after he got home and the only friends he would have had would have been friends that Kath appreciated and accepted into her home. And this also includes people like Penny Dane, the rehabilitation officer, Kerry Marshall, who was the neighbour that tried to support David and, as we spoke about earlier, ran, ran with him as a guide. Those two people were made to feel uncomfortable and stopped going to David. So a significant difference in tone from the David before Christmas to David after, to the degree that you are actually making plans so it would be wrong of me to say and we have talked about this did you foresee his death because we both did but you're having real time conversations with him about planning for the end how do you deal with that is there a part of you that says this is real or is there a part of you that says this ain't real I'm just I'll go along with the conversation because that's where he wants to go today I don't think it's gonna I know it's gonna I don't think it's gonna I know it's gonna where what's your level of reception to that that dialogue at the time I remember it quite clearly Tony I remember where I was I remember where he sat because I've still got the chair. Nobody's sat on it since. I remember Angie walked him out and said, David wants to speak to you. Um, and then I remember the conversation. Um, and unfortunately, that conversation put me as the the uncle or the bad brother that decided that was going to change everything. It wasn't like that. Um, there was an element of, yes, that he is going to end his life. And that was always from, as soon as I knew he was blind, Tony. Um, and obviously the only thing that made, it's difficult, isn't it? You look at, like you say, these trains colliding. If you go along David's journey, there were certain things that were not inevitable, like the breakdown of his marriage, the assault by his son, the press turning against him. They're not inevitable, but those things do happen. And those pieces, uh, in the jigsaw were destined to make David decide to take his life. What specific instructions did he 
give to you? What, what you have to remember, Tony, is I've always tried to put my head on the pillar at the end of the night and be truthful with what I've done for the right reasons, and hopefully that's what I will do. The things David asked me to do were, and this is how it basically came out of, out of his mouth, was, Darren, I need you to listen. I don't want you to talk. I want you to listen to what I'm telling you. Not that something's going to happen. I just need you to know just in case something does. That's it. That's how he opened that conversation. And then he said, I do not, under any circumstances, want a police funeral. And then I sat there and I said, oh, no, we're not having that. He said, shut up. You said, I said, don't speak. So he said, no police funeral. I do not want my wife at my funeral under any circumstances, which then I knew would be a problem. And thirdly, I want to be buried in Stafford. And the last one was, I want you to look, I want you to look after my children. That was it. So it's time to leave and it's time to head home. It's the back end of February 2012. I don't think we should underestimate what a big moment that is for David given everything that we've just expressed when he gets in that car to head to Adelaide airport he is in fact serving himself the last rites and 99% certain he knows it too I think it, that was his last last attempt to try and save his marriage Tony I think if if we look back now, if that would have, if that could have been saved, um, he'd still be here for or until it, if it broke down again. It, he knew if he couldn't save his marriage, he was done. Describe the moment when he leaves your house for the last time. Even thinking about that, I um, yeah, that's emotional for me. Um, he um, he decided that he didn't want me to go with him he just wanted uh, Angie to take him so he sat in my garage in my white Pajero in the passenger seat looking straight ahead Angie looked at me with this look of what do I do and he just said to me You have to excuse me, Tony, I can't do it. Um, he told me he loved me. And at that he said, go on. And then they just drove out, the, the door was up and he just drove off. Never looked back, never. And there was no expression. And just drove off. And then I fell on the garage floor, crying. Because I knew I wouldn't see him again. But on the back of that, Tony, what you've got, and I had, I had email, not email, I had Facebook comments saying you let your brother drive off and you, you killed him and you could have stopped him. And you're right, I could have stopped him, but I would have had to have put him in, I would have had to arrest him under the Mental Health Act here, and there was no way I was going to do that to my brother. When we come back, we'll explore those final days and hours. Next time on the Rathband Tapes. I thought you'd leave me. Quite rightly as well, I wouldn't have blamed her. 
So, remember, everybody has a story. To find out more, please visit secretsofaghostwriter.com and to comment on this episode, head to the Secrets of a Ghostwriter Facebook page. With thanks to Rob Jones at Ultimate Content, this is a Horny Media and Publishing production.